Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash art of man, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So in the quest to become the men we want to be, we're often our own worst enemies, especially when it comes to our egos. Egos is what prevents us from being humble and teachable when we're first starting out in an endeavor. It blinds us to our own weaknesses during success, and it can cause us to wallow in self-pity when we fail. My guest today is Ryan Holiday, and in his latest book, Ego is the Enemy, he discusses how ego can thwart our personal progress and success as men. Today on the show, we look at examples from history of great men whose hubris caused their downfall and other men who were able to successfully harness their ego to attain greatness. Uh, Along the way, provide actionable steps that you can do to prevent ego becoming your enemy. After the podcast is over, make sure you check out the show notes at aom.is slash ego, where you can find links to resources mentioned throughout the show. And so without further ado, Ryan Holiday and Ego is the Enemy. Ryan Holiday, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. I think last time we talked, you were recording this from your closet, and I could see you on the thing. Yeah, well, I'm still recording from my closet. All right. Okay, very cool. <laughs> you just can't see me. <laughs> uh, still, still going old school here. Um, so you got a new book out, Ego is the Enemy. Um, before we talk about the details of the book, let's start off talking about what do you mean by ego exactly? Are we talking Freudian ego? What is it? Yeah, so definitely not Freudian ego, not even uh, psychologist ego. I, I think I'm referring to it. Well, I know I'm referring to. It. I'm referring to it in the in the colloquial sense. The the sort of know it when you see it ego. Um, you know what what Bill Walsh would say is um, when self confidence becomes arrogance. You know um, when I, I'm using it as an umbrella term to define sort of all of the characteristics. Uh, in which uh, sort of the normal confidence, normal self-assurance, uh, normal uh, sort of goal-seeking behavior um, bleeds over into the the sort of toxic self-absorption and toxic uh, selfishness and 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 uh, compulsion that leads to, to 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 negative outcomes. So I'm I'm referring to not oh, is that guy literally an egomaniac? But much more, you know, what are these traits that make us our own worst enemy, that, that, that put us at odds with the things that we say that we're trying to achieve? Okay, all right. And I think what you're talking about is, is a timeless idea. I mean, it seems like a lot of the major religions or philosophies have talked about how ego can get in the way of yourself. Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I th- I think at the root of every Greek tragedy, for instance, is is hubris, and hubris would be a, f- a form of ego. You know, e- even if that word didn't necessarily exist, um, the 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 idea of you know what happens when our sense of realism is replaced with delusions of grandeur. What do we do? What what happens when we when we overestimate our own importance? You know that. It, it's a it's a thing that essentially every religion and every philosophy ever has warned against. Um, it just happens that today, I think we, you know, instead of warning against a lot of these things, we actually hold them up as as uh, you know 
positive attributes. This is what every motivational speaker is out there encouraging is, is sort of ego in one form or another, sadly. Yeah. I mean, it seems like our culture today promotes this unhealthy, exaggerated ego. And you just talked about like the motivational speakers and the, but like a lot of the books about business and entrepreneurship, it's all about being self-promoting, like, you know, name it and take it and uh, it's yours and all this other stuff. Yeah. And I mean, just think of what social media is. It's your, it's not supposed to reflect your actual life. It's supposed to reflect your idealized life. And the, you know, I think a lot of it is rooted in what you're just saying, this idea of sort of faking it till you make it. Um, that That's a very, that that's, that's a seductive, egotistical idea that, you know, in my opinion, or in, in my experience, doesn't, doesn't normally work out well for people. But, you know, you're supposed to dare greatly and, and have these grand visions of success and ambition and, and, uh, you know, pursue your passion and your calling. We we say a lot of these things, but they're not tempered with any sort of real purpose or any real understanding. Or in in a lot of cases, we're encouraging them without any hard work either, right? And so it 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 creates a it creates a scenario in which our our grandiose uh, impulses are encouraged and excited, and then the things that are supposed to temper and balance that out are left by the wayside. Gotcha. We'll get into more of those uh, things into detail. But for you, like, what inspired you to write this book, Ego is the Enemy? Was it events in your own life, just observations from culture, or is it in some way a continuation of your work you started in The Obstacle is the Way? Um, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a little bit of both, I think. So Obstacle is the Way was about external obstacles and how people can be um, sort of rational and... Uh, creative and strategic about dealing with those obstacles and and sort of using the the stoic mindset in which to do so. And so when I was sort of thinking about what comes next after that, I was really thinking, okay, what makes all, doing that so hard for people? And what is the biggest obstacle that most people face? And, um, you know, in, in my own experience and a lot of the, the people that I get emails from and, and my client work and the sort of powerful, important people that I've worked for, I, what I kept sort of sensing was that the enemy for most of us is ourselves. It's not, you know, we, you know, DJ Khaled likes to talk about the they that are, you know, they don't want you to have this. They don't, in reality, most people don't like, you know, the, the, the world is indifferent to you. What prevents people from achieving what they want to achieve is, is oftentimes their own bad habits, their own bad impulses. It's, it's, you know, their own ego that's getting in their way. And, and ego is what prevents, you know, uh, looking at a situation rationally, uh, not taking it personally. It's what prevents, you know, persistence and perseverance because we feel like we shouldn't have to do these things. So, it, it was sort of a, a, a coalescing of these two different, uh, you know, trains of thought that I had that, that you know, ego prevents the hard work of, of overcoming obstacles. And ironically, ego tends to be its own enormous obstacle. And so that's, that's sort of where I was coming from in the book. And originally, the book was going to be about humility, which I know you guys have written a lot about. And I, I, I mean, you can tell me if, if you think I'm off base here, but I found that sort of talking about humility, one, it's a difficult thing to talk about because the first question is like, are you humble? Right? So it's like a different thing. To, it's a difficult thing to talk about. But also, humility doesn't tend to be very inspirational to people, right? So it's it's difficult. I, I found that almost all the stories of humility sound more or less the same. They're not they're not super action oriented. And so when I was thinking about writing about humility, I was trying to think of what is a way to come at it that would captivate people's attention and, and sort of actually be of practical use. And I realized that, you know, in many ways, ego is the opposite of humility. And so I decided to focus on ego as being this, you know, uh, this impediment to the humility that we want and that we need. And, and so that's where the, the book came from. Right. So you inverted, right. Instead of focusing on humility, you focused on the opposite of it, but yeah, by, yeah, doing, and, by doing that, you were able to talk about humility. 
Yes, exa- exactly. And I think one, talk about humility in a way that is actionable and interesting to people. But two, I mean, it's a little bit of the, the, the message of the book itself in that, you know, you sit down and you think you have one idea for a book. This is what you think you're going to do. And I, I mean, I had a contract to write a book about this topic. And then I, as I was going through the material and, and mostly as I was doing my research and writing my notes and starting to sketch out this book, I realized that my, my vision or my plan was flawed and it wasn't going to work as I originally planned it. And so I think, you know, when people ask, you know, why does humility matter? Why does, you know, why is ego bad? In, in the most practical sense, any sort of creative pursuit or entrepreneurial venture, you start out with a sort of a gut instinct or an idea. But if you're not going to be open to feedback from the world, if you're if you're going to be so certain that you are instinctually right, um, you're not going to be able to adapt and change when it turns out that things were more complicated than you thought, or that maybe you hadn't you didn't have the experience or you hadn't considered something yet. And so it's only in actually doing the thing and then being open to learning from it that you're able to 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 grow and improve and and you know this book wouldn't have been possible had i been convinced that i was immediately and uh you know unassailably correct with with my original plan right so you had to, you had to overcome the ego to write your book about overcoming the ego yeah i mean you know you write a book proposal and the publisher says we don't like it you can say hey screw you i'm going to self publish or screw you i'm going to sell it to someone else or you can say well Maybe I don't agree with why you don't like it, but something is clearly not right. And so what do I, I, I need to go back to the drawing board and you know do another pass at this and then another pass. And then actually making the book is, or making any project is, I, I think craft is inherently ego killing because every day you're struggling against some problem or you know, you're falling short in the pursuit of perfection. Yeah. So um, let's talk, the way you organize the book is interesting. You you break it up into three sections and they correlate to three phases that you say people constantly find themselves in. Yeah. So, so I mean, this might be getting a little too insider for people, but I believe that every book should have a three-part structure. And this came to me from Sean Coyne, who is Stephen Pressfield's editor, who's done a, you know amazing books like The War of Art and, and uh, Gates of Fire. Um, but, you know, all of you know, going back to Greek literature, you've got your your in Aristotle, you've got your your three part structure. Um, and so I was trying to think, you know, what is a three part structure? My last book was Perception, Action, and Will. Um, the three part structure of of ego, I felt, was that we're when we're starting out, ego is destructive because it pre- it prevents us from learning. It makes us think we're better than we are. You know, it 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 uh, makes us want to move too quickly. You know a number of destructive, um, uh, destructive traits, and then after we aspire, you know, if we've conquered our ego there, then we achieve success uh, in some way. Um, so you know, we've we've gotten a great job. You know, we've signed our first deal. We've been you know chosen in the draft. Whatever it is, we're we're achieving some measure of success. Well, now ego manifests itself in another number of ways. Right? It's feeling like you've suddenly arrived. That you're better than everyone else. Uh, that it's going to be amazing from here on out. You know, now maybe you've got people working under you, and so power is is uh, you know the, the 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 corruptive nature of of power is is warping on onto your ego. Um, maybe you feel like you've learned everything that there is to learn. Um, the, these are the effects of ego in the success phase of our life. And then you know, as we know, successful people either aspire to some new level of success, so they're essentially going back to the the next step, or they they fail in some way, or they they find out that success is uh, has its has a new set of difficulties. Right now, all of a sudden, they're in a uh, they're attacked by a media outlet, or you know, the the market shifts, or uh, someone, a, a competitor comes after them. So now they're dealing with adversity or difficulty or failure. And so ego here manifests itself in a number of other ways that are also destructive. Um, you know, it's taking this thing personally, believing that you've been screwed over and, and giving into resentment or hatred, or it's, uh, it's, 
you know, you maybe you maybe you were you found yourself in a in a state of difficulty because you screwed up. You did something wrong. Well, can you admit that you did something wrong, and can you can you learn from this, or do you decide, hey, uh, I'm doubling down on the on the problems that got me here? So whether you're you're aspiring, you're succeeding, or you're dealing with some form of adversity, ego is really uh, the least helpful variable that you could introduce into any of those phases of your life. And I, I feel like we're in sort of a, a constant uh, fluid transition along that spectrum over the course of our, in, our entire lives. And I, I imagine it's possible to be in those three phases the same time in different facets, like different phases at the same time in different facets of your life. So maybe you're totally right, aspiring with your career, but you succeeded in some other, you know, I don't know, you've run a marathon or something like that and you did well, you're that. that Yeah, absolutely. Or to you're, you know, you're successful on the one hand and then you've started this other venture on the other. And so, you know, if, if you're bringing your ego of success, like, you know, um, you know, someone is a, someone's a, a, a rapper and then they decide to become an actor, right? You're, you could be, egotistical in your in your musical profession and maybe you're getting away with it because you're so successful even though it's it's causing problems for you but if you bring that ego to this new thing that you're starting and you're you're convinced that that ego is is uh is transferable you're going to be rudely surprised when you're not nearly as good at that thing as you maybe think that you are you're not going to be able to to improve and take you know feedback and and work well with others and and you know sort of hustle and build the relationships that you need to succeed in that other field and so um that that's that's where ego is such a tricky thing is that you know we never we're never permanently in any of these phases we're we're always doing and trying new things and and uh you know maybe a project is partially successful and partially not successful and our ego is is what's going to sort of determine that balance i think so like you did in obstacles of the way uh you f- went to history to find examples of individuals who uh, were good models of these different of, of ego either getting in the way or, or them overcoming ego in these different phases of life in the aspire phase you talk about the civil war general sherman uh who is you know controversial uh, figure, um, but what can Sherman teach about managing our ego in the aspire phase? Yeah, I mean, I I do think it is. It, it's interesting that he's a controversial figure. I, I don't totally understand the the controversy a hundred and fifty years removed from the event. But what I think so fascinating about Sherman is that uh, he was unlike a, a typical. You know, our sort of stereotype of a great general, maybe it's a MacArthur or a McClellan or, um, you know, a Napoleon who sort of believe themselves to be marked for greatness from like the day that they were born. Sherman never really had any of that. In fact, you know, he was he was uh, he was basically orphaned as a young boy. He, he grew up. He was adopted. He, he, he got into West Point, but he did not. Uh, it was not particularly distinguished there. He had a series of of sort of backwater postings. He was like he was a figure during the gold rush, and that uh, you know he he actually held the original gold nugget that was discovered that set off the gold gold rush. But he made no fortune in the in the gold rush, and um, he, even in the in the, the the early days of the Civil War, he was sort of like a mediocre general. Um, but what people didn't understand is that he was learning this entire time, that he was um, B.H. Liddell Hart, who wrote this amazing biography of of Sherman, which I, I used in the book, is talking about, you know, for the person who thinks that they're destined for greatness, um, they never really accomplish enough and they never really enjoy what they're experiencing because they are, they are, they felt entitled to it. Whereas someone like Sherman, his sort of slow, gradual rise was... A much sweeter process in that it's the accumulation of actual confidence and the accumulation of actual accomplishments. And so um, I think what, what, what Sherman managed to do was focus on what he was trying to accomplish more than his sort of personal vanity or goal. So, you know, um, at, at the Battle of Vicksburg, for instance, uh, Sherman tech, uh, no, sorry, Donaldson, the Battle of Donaldson, for Donaldson, Sherman technically outranked Grant. And, and, and similarly at, uh, 
at Vicksburg. He, he, he could have been in a position, a superior position, but he decided to subsume his personal, uh, his sort of personal ego and vanity to serving this greater mission. And they built a team uh, where, where they, where they function quite well together. And in fact, you know, Sherman's role at, uh, at, at Vicksburg was actually one of, of a, of a faint, a, a distraction. And he did not participate in the main thrust of the battle, but, but he, he, he would tell Grant over and over again, Hey, like, look, I'm just here to do my part. And what they discovered together at Vicksburg, and I talk about this in obstacle, what they discovered at Vicksburg was accidentally uh, a strategy that Sherman would then use to 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 win the Civil War, his his march to the sea, um, which in itself was an exercise in the restraint of ego. The 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 reason the U.S. Civil War went longer than it needed to, and and why so many people died is is that the generals were convinced that it would be decided in a series of head-to-head battles. McClellan, who was much smarter than Sherman, who had all the credentials, who was who was given a superior command, would would spend weeks and months waiting and maneuvering for these large, decisive battles that he, th- he thought would, would decisively win the war, and they never happened. And what Sherman realized is that if he took the war to the enemy, if he took this march to the south— um, and he avoided these confrontations, and he instead he instead he instead focused on the objectives, the cities that he needed to take, and the, the sort of bringing the what he called the hard hand of war to the southern people. He would win, but it, that that required a certain awareness and and um, disdain for the the vanity that had motivated these other generals. And so, you know, then the final the final thing I talk about in the book related to Sherman is is after the war Sherman is one of the most influential people in all of America and he's he's essentially offered the presidency and he says you know what no I I, I don't like politics I have all the rank I want I don't I'm I'm the Sherman esque statement is his famous statement declining to run for presidency if if nominated I will not run if elected I will not serve um he doesn't run for presidency Grant wins the presidency it's the worst thing that basically happens to him sherman was was i this model for me of someone who's very self-contained very self-motivated very realistic um you know not pessimistic but realistic in his assessment of himself and his own abilities and i think that's what made him such a a powerful force ultimately uh, you know for for the for the good of the united states and and for his own sort of personal happiness right yeah that contrast between sherman and grant was interesting um you know, Grant, yeah, went on to be the president. And he was an okay president. Like, I, yes, what didn't I think he had some problems? Like, there's like a lot. It of It didn't go well for him. A lot of corruption within his his presidency, et cetera. Yeah, he basically bit off more than he could chew. He, he didn't have any like Grant, and I love Grant. I I raved about him in in Obstacle, but you know, Grant. Grant was a great general because he didn't play politics. He focused on on the task at hand, and that's why he worked so well with Lincoln. So for him to run for president was, uh, I think, in a large part, a complete uh, misunderstanding of his own strengths and weaknesses. But but whatever, uh, you know, Eisenhower ran for president and did pretty well. But so he ran for president, and he did terrible. Uh, it. it it sort of caught him by surprise how poorly it went uh, because he, he wasn't a great judge of of character uh, politically, and so you know this is where the corruption the corruption happened. And after his presidency, he he starts a brokerage house with his son and an investor named Ferdinand Ward, who turned out to be uh, basically a Bernie Madoff of his day. And it, it financially, uh, Grant is bankrupted and ruined. He ends up having to literally to pawn his civil war mementos, his sword, um, to pay off the debts that he incurred. And um, uh, I remember Sherman wrote a letter. Um, I don't remember if it was to Grant or someone else, but basically he was saying how sad it was that Grant was trying to, he said, Grant aimed to rival the millionaire's who would have given anything to have won one of his battles. And so it's this inability to know sort of what's important to you, what you actually value, and, and try to compete with everyone else that, that often gets us into trouble. Right. I mean, this is a perfect example of individuals who they succeeded in one area of life and they think, oh, well, I can succeed in this other area of life just because I was successful in this one other. And that, that's not how it works. Not how it works. No, it's definitely not how it works. And and we think, hey, it was easy last time. It'll be easy this time. And we don't really understand 
what went into our success the first time, oftentimes because we take it for granted. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we give ourselves a little bit of the halo effect because I was dominant in this area. Naturally, I must be dominant in this other area. And so you see so many people waste so much time and money. And I mean, ultimately, Grant died at like 63, partly reeling from these failures. And, and you know, what might America have looked like? What might have his life had looked like if he had if he'd managed to resist that that impulse? And and I think that's very sad. It's, it's a cautionary. I'm not judging him. I'm saying it's a cautionary tale for me that I try to live in my own life. It's like when you when you when you accomplish something or you've you know you've built some level of success for yourself. All of a sudden, that these opportunities start coming your way, and you have to decide. Hey. Which of these opportunities are in any way adjacent or similar to what I'm already good at? You know, and do you even have an understanding of what you're good at? Um, but ego can be this seductive force that that really leads you astray. Okay, so you also talk about John Boyd. We can't leave this podcast without talking about John Boyd because he's one of my favorite characters from history because he's this really complex character. But super complex. Um, you use him as an example of not letting ego get in the way during the aspire phase what can we learn from the life of john boyd about overcoming ego in that part of our life when we're just starting out on some venture yeah well so what i would say is first off if you don't read my book you should definitely read uh the art of manliness piece on the 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 to be or to do speech which is uh obviously i was familiar with this speech uh before from robert corum's amazing biography of boyd but that that piece is is that that speech is what I, I based the story of Boyd uh, on in, in one of the chapters. And basically what, what Boyd was famous for doing, people don't really know who he is. He was one of uh, you know America's greatest fighter pilots and then ultimately became sort of a warrior inside the Pentagon for reform and efficiency and strategy change inside the, the U.S. military. And um, one of the, he, he was much more, influential as sort of a groomer of men than he was as an actual sort of leader of troops on the battlefield. Uh, but one of the things he would do is he, he had this speech as, as, a, as a, a young sort of acolyte would come into his orbit. He would see them for all their potential. He would know the, the sort of trajectory that most young officers would go through, which is they would show promise and then they would start to sort of become addicted to the to the status, to the trappings of of politics and power of their office uh, or, or of their of their post, and and how it would lead them astray and, and eventually make them sort of do more harm than good. And so he would give this speech where he would draw them in and he would say, "Look, you know, you're coming to a fork in the road. Are you going to be someone that does things, or are you going to be someone who is something?" So basically, he's saying, "Are you going to choose between status or influence? Are you going to choose between credit or 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 accomplishment?" And that speech was was what the, I, I talk about that because we we as young people have to make that same choice as we're starting. Are we going to focus on? sort of purpose and mission or are we going to or are we going to focus on you know impressing people or financial rewards or or any number of these superficial concerns that often lead many many people uh, astray and so i read that speech when i was 19 years old it was very influential to me in, in the idea of like man credit is this seductive egotistical thing that really uh, prevents a lot of people from fulfilling their their true and deepest potential. And I've sort of held him up as a model in my life of someone who said, look, I'd rather be the guy behind the scenes. I don't really care what people think of me, but I'd rather have I'd rather have influence than uh, let's say power, or I'd rather have, you know, uh, accomplishment versus credit and recognition. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. 
Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Right. And that's what happened in his life. Like he, you know, didn't, he wasn't able to advance to general. He stayed a Lieutenant Colonel no. for his career. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, he was focused on these, you know, reforming the Pentagon and the brass top brass didn't like that. And, um, but in the end, like the tactics and the strategy and the, the whole approach to warfare that he developed, that was used during the first Gulf War um, by the Marines. And like, it's what allowed us to like basically end the war in like a few days. To totally. Yeah. He, he did not lead troops in battle, but he influenced the entire scope and uh, battle plan of all of the troops across, you know, across the different branches of the armed forces, which is, you know, he really lived what he was talking about. There's no aircraft carrier named after John Boyd. And, you know, he died in, they were saying, a somewhat dingy apartment, but he was he was uncorrupted and he was pure and true to what he believed in. And he, I think, ultimately accomplished far more than he would have had he, you know, coveted these these other things. And, you know, that's that's something that I think every 
every young person faces. You've got to say, like, look, to be or to do, who who am I going to be? What is important to me? What I, I think Sherman faced this, and, and I think a lot of great people. What, you know, what what path am I going to follow in life? Am I going to follow the one that maybe gets me paid really well right out of the gate, or am I gonna am I gonna put in the time and the hours to to be self sufficient and and free and and able to uh, able to 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 do the things that I actually think are important and that I need to be done. So uh, another part thing you talk about in the book in the aspire phase that trips particularly young people up is this idea of passion. We've had other guests on the show talk about how passion can trip people up. Um, but instead of passion, right? I know we shouldn't have passion and we can talk about why, but what should we have instead of passion? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm using passion in the, in the more pure sense of its definition, like what the, the Greeks would say, the passions, right? Like the the sort of, the uncontrollable urges and energy that that they sort of saw as as dangerous. I think so. When I hear people go, "I'm following my passion," I sort of get the sense that they're just being whipped around by something that they don't quite control. Um, I would I would contrast <clears throat> passion with with purpose. Um, purpose is this is what you know. Purpose is the John Boyd the John Boyd approach. It's this is what is important. This is what I'm trying to do. This is the larger mission that I'm serving, rather than you know, um, I've just got to do this. I'm so passionate. I'm so excited. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I think purpose is deliberative and and patient and uh, controlled and and passion is is zealous and 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 unrestrained. And so I think someone with purpose is able to sacrifice. They're able to play a longer game. They're, they're able to, uh, you know, put up with things that maybe, uh, they would have rather not had to like Jackie Robinson was not passionate about baseball. Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, integrated baseball as someone on a mission of immense purpose. And that's what allowed him to say, you know, not punch someone in the face who deserved to be punched in the face. Um, or, or, you know, not at branch Ricky said, you know, I want someone who has the guts not to fight back. Uh, someone with purpose has that someone with passion is, is I think sort of a, you know, a vessel that can barely contain itself. Right. I had, uh, Angela Duckworth on the podcast last week and that's what she like her, her she's like the grit lady. Yeah. And yeah, she says purpose is the thing you got to have. That's what allows you to have, or one of the factors allows you to have grit to see things through the long through. And you have this, this purpose that you're dedicated to. And even when things get hot, tough, you're still going to stick to it. And yeah, and passion is fleeting, right? It's, it's emotionally based. Um, and so one day you might feel great and super passionate and excited, but the next day, eh, not so much. And yeah, or like I see this with a lot of authors, right? They'll go like, oh, I'm passionate. I want to do a book. And it'll be like, about what? They're like, I don't know. And it's like, okay, someone who has purpose is saying, this is what I believe, and this is what I want to communicate to the world, and maybe a book is the best way for me to do that. Or when they decide that a book is the best way to do it, then they're all in. But passion is, hey, someone said I should do this, and now uh, that's why I'm doing it, and let's go right now. You know what I mean? Uh, uh you know, um, was it Christopher McCandless? It, he's passionate about the wild. I want to go into the wild. I got to pursue this calling. And then he goes there and he's not remotely trained or knowledgeable enough to do it. And he, he dies a tragic, unnecessary death there. Um, and, you know, hey, we've got to make it to the summit of Everest, even though uh, all the warnings are against it. And, uh, you know, everyone is saying it's a bad idea. Passion is able to override that. Um, you know, and, and, and get past it. That's that. That's not admirable to me. A- admirable to me. You know, Shackleton. I've got to get back to my men. I've got to rescue my men. That's purpose. You know, that's that is admirable to me. All right. So we've been talking about the aspire phase, and I can see how this can this this part of um, the fa- the life cycle of any venture can trip up a lot of young people. Cause yeah, we get these grandiose ideas. We, we get those motivational posters, put them on Instagram, talking about how we're going to do great things, blah, blah, blah. And a lot more talk, a lot less action. So the, yeah, the, I guess the bottom line is in the aspire phase, just more action, less talk. Yes. Yes. More action, less talk and more openness and, and less 
certainty and self-absorption. Okay. So let's move on to the success phase. Um, you, you People, you've, you aspire to it, you've set your goals, you've worked, you've achieved success. And I think it was Napoleon who said that, you know, the most dangerous moment in any battle is that the moment of victory. Um, so how, why is that? Why does, how does success get in the way of success? Well, I think what <clears throat> Napoleon is saying is that it's at that moment of victory that you can re- you you think that you've earned the right to relax you think that that that's where you make your gravest mistakes and in, in many ways the stakes are highest at that moment as well so you know that it's it's in it's you might be you might have been disciplined when you were on the ascent because you sort of knew you needed to be but now you're successful where you feel like you've earned some victory now chaos and disorder might may take over or, or bad habits that were suppressed early on now come <coughs> come home home to roost. And so, what what I think success requires is not, or what se- what success needs is not ego, not uh, complacency, but sort of a doubling down on the good habits that that created that success in the first place. So, uh, you know, you know, if 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 it was your dedication to learning. That 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 took you to this place. One cannot say, "Well, and now I know everything I need to know, so it's all good." It's it's you know, Genghis Khan says, uh, or I, I talk about Genghis Khan in the book, and and that really what was so profound about him as a conqueror was that he, at at every every new country he took over, he he saw as a as essentially a superior culture that he needed to absorb into his empire and into his way of thinking. What can I learn from this enemy that I just vanquished? You know, what is the best that their society has to offer? I'm just saying, you know, if you feel pride, you cannot lead. Uh, and, and this, this, uh, this idea that one must always remain a student and one must always, uh, resist the impulse to feel like, that this success that they've achieved says something about them as a person, that it says that you're better than you were before you had the success. So I get the idea about always being a student, like maintain that white belt mentality. Um, yeah. I thought one of the chapters that you had was interesting was about, like you said, mentioned earlier, like doubling down on the habits or actions you did to get you to the success and continue that and actually like developing a system um, yes. for that. And I think that's, uh, that's hard for a lot of particularly like entrepreneurs, artists, writers, they think that sort of stodgy and stifles creativity, but you argue that that's actually what's going to allow you to, to continue your success that you've gained. Sure. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. It's a somewhat current one. So Donald Trump has run probably one of the most impressive presidential campaigns of the last century. I, I don't admire him as a politician at all. I think he's a, a horrendous person, but um, it, it's it's one cannot help but be blown away that the fact that this guy beat out sixteen or seventeen other candidates, uh, totally on his own with a staff of like five people. Like it's pretty, it's it's astounding when you think about how little he spent, how little experience he had in this, and the you know billions of dollars of free media attention that he's been able to do to to cobble together this nomination. Right. So you could argue that previously he was in the aspirational phase and now he's achieved some measure of success in that he's now the presumptive nominee as we're talking. I don't know when this comes out, uh, if he'll actually be the nominee yet. I don't think so, but he'll be the nominee. Right. And so he could be forgiven for thinking like, let's say, God forbid, he wins the presidency. If he thinks that the the sort of amateur esque, you know, tiny team that he managed to win the campaign with is going to function uh, the same way in terms of governing the one of the most powerful countries in the world, he's going to be sorely mistaken. And in fact, we saw the same thing happen with the Obama campaign. When they won in 2008, um, they felt like, I remember there was, there was a, a lot of interesting articles. They built this sort of technologically uh, uh, based team. It was decentralized. It was it was fast moving. It was filled with lots of young people. It's all this stuff, and then they just assumed it would naturally transfer over to the bureaucracy that is, 
you know, the executive branch of the United States. And then they were rudely surprised when, hey, they weren't using the same computers, that there were legal constraints and that you had to run things through certain processes. And hey, all of a sudden, the things that got you there aren't the things that are going to allow you to be successful once you're there. And so I think that's similar to a lot of us. Like we can be young, we can be scrappy and fluid and loose on our way up. And I've, cert I've certainly had to go through some of these growing pains myself. Um, but then once you've arrived, you have to now you're the man, you know, you were, you were railing against the man before, but now you're the man and people are counting on you and expecting certain things from you. And you're expected to perform and operate at a certain level that, you know, things you were able to get away with before are not possible now. And, you know, you could argue maybe that that's what sunk Ulysses S. Grant uh, versus a Dwight D. Eisenhower who came in and, and really instituted a sense of order and purpose and, and discipline to, to, to the White House. But that requires a sense that, hey, maybe the way that I want to do things are not the way that things are going to have to be. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay accepting that. I'm going to put in the hard work to do what needs to be done. Well, I'm curious, Ryan. I mean, you're a writer. Um, how have, and you're a successful one. Uh, how has your approach to your craft and your business changed uh, since you've you know, gained success? I mean, Austin the Way is New York Times bestseller, right? Uh, not New York Times, but it, it sold very, very yeah. well, um, which, which, you know, in some ways, I don't, I don't want to say it caught me off guard, but it certainly sold better than I expected. And as I finished this book, you know, I think one of the things you have to, you have to do in that position is, is okay. Now the expectations are higher. You know, I'm not freed from those expectations. I have to deliver to an audience. Uh, I have to, I have to hit a certain mark. Right. And, and ideally in a career, you're always getting better than you were before. So now the expectations have changed and that's something that's managed or that, that has to be managed. But I think the big thing that happens when people are successful, whether you're a writer or an entrepreneur uh, or, or even executive, is that you more responsibilities and obligations are thrust upon you. So where I was able to write the last book without as many interruptions, you know, now I've got interviews that I have to do or speaking gigs that I have to do or my business is taking off so I have more clients. Now, if I don't have the discipline to institute a system or a schedule that I stick to or if I'm not able to prioritize and I treat everything that happens equally, that is a recipe for uh, dropping some major balls, making errors, you know, um, uh, letting people down, you know, you talk, I, I mentioned Eisenhower, you guys have an amazing post on Eisenhower's priority matrix about urgency versus important. Uh, that's, that is the situation that success puts you in is you've got so many demands on your time that if you can't properly prioritize and order them and deal with them, deal with them accordingly, you're going to find yourself consumed with some trivial matter that you used to, that used to be part of your job, but but you you're too egotistical to uh, to delegate, and so you know those are just some of the ways that you find yourself you know in a position of abundance certainly, but that doesn't mean that there are not problems related to it. Right, I think that the, the delegation right. We are, there's lots of books and articles about delegating, but I think yeah, the thing that keeps people from delegating is ego. They think I can do this better than the other guy. I'm going to delegate this to. Totally, and and <clears throat> here's why it's egotistical. You're right. You pro I can do most of the things that I have to delegate. I mean, there's the stuff I don't like, like, you know, booking travel or, you know, scheduling. I don't like that. But a lot of the things that I now have to delegate, uh, I like doing or I know that I'm really good at. But you have to be able to do the calculation that says, hey, uh, I'm handing this off to this person and it's going to be done, you know, 10% not as well going forward. But the trade-off for that is I have to do this other thing and I'm the only person in the world that can do that thing. You know, like I'm the only one that can write my books. I mean, I guess theoretically there's ghostwriters, but given that this is my job, I'm the only one that can do that. So, you know, Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, he's the only one that can get on the court and play as Kobe Bryant. So as these endorsements and, you know, Maybe he's actually great at negotiating contracts, and it seems silly to give someone a 15% commission for negotiating your contracts for you. But if that's distracting from the training that he has to do, or that's, that's 
occupying his mind so he's not thinking about the next game with the same dedication that he did before, all of a sudden his performance on the court is going to suffer. And, you know, I'm not Kobe Bryant, I'm not saying that, but all of us deal with that problem in our own way that we're the only ones that can do some of the things. And uh, if we're not able to delegate, those things are going to suffer. Like there's a quote I have in the book from from Eisenhower's chief of staff. He's saying, the president does the most important things and I do the next most important things. And if you can't build the approximation of that, you know, into your own life once you're successful, I don't think success is going to last that long for you or it's going to be very miserable. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, failure. Everyone's going to fail yeah. at some point in their life. How is ego the enemy when we fail? Because that's like the, the moment we fail. It's like when you think people would like that, you, would, you wouldn't have any ego, right? Or you think that ego w- was helpful because it would help you sort of protect you in that moment of vulnerability. Right. But in fact, the vulnerability is good because, and you, and it, by preventing you from having it, it's preventing you from from capitalizing on it. So it's like, you know, let's say uh, you were egotistical in your success and you alienated people and you, you, you made some mistake or you overreached. You know, failure is in, in that way is a moment of truth, right? It's exposing this thing that maybe you didn't want to be true. And the worst thing that can happen is for you to bury your head in the sand, right? The worst thing that can happen is that you know, you hit what should be rock bottom, but you're too hard headed to accept that that's what in fact has happened. And that happens a lot. Like, I mean, think about Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs is fired from Apple, uh, in, in, you know, uh, by, by John Scully, uh, because he'd, he'd become unmanageable. He was unaccountable. He was, he was basically unhinged. He could have taken that and said, this guy screwed me over, uh, you know, I, you know, he screwed me over. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I'm going to retire with my money and millions and, and live a life of luxury or whatever. But instead, he said, he basically, you know, and he was an egotistical person, but he started two other companies and those companies were better than Apple. And he learned from those mistakes. I mean, one of those companies was Pixar. Uh, he learned from those mistakes. He went on a journey of, of self-improvement and, and introspection. And ultimately, he came back from back to Apple and, and built it into the world's most valuable company. But uh, that's not what most people do when they're fired. Most people get fired and then they hold a grudge and they, they believe that they've been screwed over or wronged. And they continue down that negative path. It becomes a, a, a downward spiral for them. And so what ego does when we fail is it refuses to learn the lessons inherent in that failure and set us up for greater failure. Right. I think you call this narcissistic injury. Yeah. Yeah. Narcissistic injury, it is a psychological term. It's like what when something happens and we take that as an as an injury to our identity and to our fragile sense of self. Like when gang members kill each other, it's 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 a funny it's funny it's tragic but it's funny it's like the things they kill each other over are these things that a normal person would be like wait what do you care that he said that about you like you know be, but because they're so their narcissistic ego is so fragile the idea that someone would bump up against them or that someone would disrespect them you know in in quotes leads them to do this horrible thing that is you know obviously Going to jail is far worse than, you know, somebody tagging a wall in your neighborhood or whatever. But the narcissistic injury, it's it, it, it's so fragile that it has to sort of deal with this threat in an overblown, you know, preposterous fashion. And so I think so much of what ha- so much of what happens to us it, when we're when we're consumed by ego is that we 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 take we take the success that we've achieved and we say that it says something about us as a person. And then logically, when we fail or when we're, you know, we're snubbed by someone or we're disrespected by someone, we take that as a statement about our identity as well. And often that, that makes us overreact in such a, uh, a damaging fashion that it, that it's, far worse than than whatever had happened already. Right. And on the flip side, it doesn't even have to be someone else doing something to you. It could just be like fate, you know, just like luck, chance. Totally. Cause you to fail, right? You started your business at the wrong time. There's a downturn in the economy. Yet because of that narcissistic 
ego, you would think, well, it's something I did, right? I, I messed up. Even though like anyone else in your position would have done the exact same thing. Sure. And, and ego makes it hard to ask for help. It makes it hard for you to reevaluate your decisions. It makes, it makes it impossible for you to see this thing objectively because you're so tied up in it. And so it either makes, uh, you know, it makes what, what could have been a, a small, you know, a small problem into a full blown catastrophe, or it just delays the inevitable. It's kicking the can down the road. And when, and when you, when you, you know, come back to it, it's worse. Uh, there's so many people, you know, they narrowly dodge a crisis, but instead of learning from it, uh, the next crisis is just, you know, 10x, you know, more explosive. So, uh, Ryan, we've been talking about how ego uh, can be the enemy, but is ego always a bad thing? Because like, you know, look, I'm a big student of history. Churchill was an admitted egoist, right? Extremely, like he was, a, he was supremely egotistical. Even T- Teddy Roosevelt, you could say, was supremely egotistical um yet ego is like what drove these guys what they were doing they feel like they had something to offer people right they, they're so that that narcissist that um narcissism that they they felt that they were they were the guys who were there to save democracy or like you know teddy roosevelt in his case you know cl- clean up the muck you know that was in the corruption that was going on so i mean how can you balance that? i mean what is going on there is that would you call that ego or is it something else or is some can egos can sometimes be beneficial in small doses yeah i mean look at that that's the fascinating question about this why why are there so many incredibly successful accomplished even admirable people who who did have big egos um a friend of mine um uh, Daniel O'Brien wrote a book about uh, presidents, and his like, he starts. He's like, "Look, to realize to to be told when you're like ten or eleven years old, you know that the president is the most powerful man in the world, and to think like, oh, that should be me, like requires a certain amount of ego and maybe even a bit of insanity. And so, you know, it, there's no question that people who feel that unending drive to not just be successful, but to be like the number one person on earth, that's going to require a certain amount of ego, I think. But when you look at people like Winston Churchill, or uh, we'll start with, with Churchill. Churchill was, on the one hand, incredibly talented, super smart, courageous, wise, you know, honorable, all these amazing things. I think that's why he was successful, not because of his ego. You know, a lot of musicians were drug dealers, or sorry, were drug addicts, but that wasn't what fueled their music. In fact, that took away from it. And like when you look at Churchill's life, often he was right so often, but he couldn't, he alienated many people and he would hurt, he would hurt the, his own chances of success because he didn't understand that the way that he dominated conversations, the way that he overstepped his bounds, the way that he impeded on other people's things, like he was convinced that being right all the time was all that mattered. And in fact, if he'd had a little bit more empathy and a little bit more understanding, he'd have been probably more successful. And, and in, you know, his, his, con- his deep conviction that he was right about Nazi Germany, whereas everyone else was wrong, that, was, that, that worked when he was right in that instance. But there were other times in his career where he felt he was equally right and had unending confidence and, and egotism convinced that, you know, he was that and he was wrong. And so it's a double-edged sword. And I think, you know, someone like TR is similar in the sense that if, if you watch the, the Roosevelt documentary that, that, um, that uh, Ken Burns just did, it's the same thing. You see this guy who, who, who at the end of his life is so, has so clearly been driven by this compulsion that he cannot be still, he cannot do anything that it, you know, it forced him to run for his disastrous sort of third term. Uh, he turned on his protege, who was one of his close friends. You know, he 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 did this adventure in in South South America that nearly killed him. He forced his kids to fight in World War One, where they died. You know, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily being easy, or it wasn't necessarily easy to beat Theodore Roosevelt. And I think some of us would have, some of us would be aghast at the cost of that ego in his personal life as well. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I think so. It, it, it forces you, it, it, 
in in some ways you have to be a little bit crazy to to go this far but it's 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 a gamble whether that craziness is ultimately gonna sort of take a a hard toll on you as well and and so it's like when we look at these really successful egotists we also want to look back and think okay is there is there a politician who was just as egotistical as Winston Churchill whose career ended disastrously because of that ego almost certainly so and so Adolf Hitler yeah right right you you the survivorship bias gives us a warped picture of of these things I think right well Ryan this has been a great conversation uh, where can people learn more about ego as the enemy so the book is available everywhere Amazon Barnes and Noble um, it's coming out in a bunch of different languages, which I'm really excited about. And then you can go to my website, ryanholiday.net, and uh, read my stuff there. Awesome. Well, Ryan Holiday, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. My guest today was Ryan Holiday. He's the author of the book, Ego is the Enemy. You can find more information about his work and the book at ryanholiday.net. And it also is available at amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, make sure to check out the show notes for this podcast at aom.is slash ego. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes. Help us spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.